Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary issues that drive health outcomes. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP. Its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. I'm speaking with two faculty members from the College of Pharmacy, University of Minnesota, Duluth. With me is Dr. Timothy Stratton, Professor of Pharmacy Practice, and Dr. Heather Blue, Assistant Professor of Pharmacy. This interview is being recorded at the 2017 ASHP Summer Meetings in Minneapolis. The discussion relates to the Joseph A. Otis ethics colloquium at the meeting, which focused on the ethical dimensions of the opioid crisis. Dr. Stratton was the lead speaker in the session, and Dr. Blue presented one of the cases discussed by attendees. Tim and Heather, uh, thank you very much for having this conversation with me. Let's begin by uh, having you give our listeners a brief sense of your responsibilities at the College of Pharmacy. Tim? Well, thank you, Bill, for uh, this invitation. In the classroom, I teach primarily statistics and ethics in our integrated curriculum. And because it's an integrated curriculum, we no longer have a standalone ethics course. Instead, I pop up in nine or ten different courses throughout the first three years. And these courses range from things like endocrinology to oncology to pharmacy management. And in each of those courses, I lead the ethics discussion within the context of the other material that the students are are learning. I'm also a senior associate to the Dean for Assessment and Accreditation in our college, so I oversee the assessment of student learning that occurs throughout our curriculum. When I put on my pharmacy practice hat, I supervise PharmD and medical students at our interprofessional student-run free clinic uh, downtown Duluth, the Hope Clinic, that operates out of a homeless shelter in town. Heather, what about you? So I practice in, at St. Luke's in our emergency department, really focusing on the development of pharmacy services within that emergency department. Uh, and there I precept for IPP students in their second and third year, um, as well as APP students who are in their fourth year, uh, and PGY1 residents. Um, and in the classroom, I teach in our infectious disease course, as well as the acute care course and the introductory institutional pharmacy practice course. Tim, uh, no state seems to have escaped the opioid crisis. Could you describe the situation here in Minnesota? Well, Minnesota actually ranks near the bottom of the list nationally in the absolute number of deaths that are associated with uh, opioid abuse. But in recent years, Minnesota has seen one of the sharpest increases in the rate of deaths associated from opioid abuse. For example, in St. Louis County, which is northeastern Minnesota, where Duluth is located, we saw an increase of more than 500% in the the number of opioid-related deaths that occurred between 1999 and 2015. This was the highest rate of increase in the entire state, which is why we are so intimately uh, interested in this. Addiction has been described as a disease of despair, And the recent closing of many of our iron mining operations in northeast Minnesota has really taken away a lot of economic hope for a lot of people on the iron range. Heather, in your emergency department practice at St. Luke's Hospital in Duluth, what manifestations of the opioid crisis have you seen? I've seen the opioid crisis from many angles within the emergency department. 
My ED team has tried, sometimes successfully, to resuscitate overdose patients. We've intubated numerous patients who opioids have really stolen their ability to breathe on their own. We see agitated patients who were saved on the scene with naloxone um, and looking to leave the emergency department so they can get their ne next high. Uh, we see repeat patients that are asking us for pain medications because their primary care physicians have fired them as patients for breaking their opioid contracts. Uh, I really see the struggle that the ED physicians have in treating pain, the struggle of determining whether it's legitimate pain or if the patients are faking this pain, really weighing the opioid versus non-opioid therapies. You know, the, they use the prescription monitoring program, and so trying to treat their patient without the bias of knowing all of that information, but still taking that information into consideration. Um, and then a lot of times these physicians don't know if the patient's going to follow up with their primary care physician. And so trying to determine what's appropriate care for the patients at this point, um, not knowing if they'll have that follow-up. And then I also see nurses that are trying to keep an open mind uh, when patients do return for frequent care, even if they're asking for the same opioids they received at the last visit. Um, and I see the patients who... Um, who writhe in pain really because they're refusing an opioid because they don't want to become addicted. So it's a lot of different angles within the, the emergency department um, from all the different professions as well as the patient. Tim, in the session here at the ASHB meeting, you use the framework of a tragedy in three acts to dramatize the origins of this major public health problem. Give us a synopsis of Act One in that tragedy. Well, in Act One, we described how from the early 1980s through the early part of this century, pain management experts and uh, patient advocacy foundations emerged, and these entities argued for the increased use of opioid pain medications to treat non-cancer chronic pain. Many of the arguments that were being used by these groups were based on very weak scientific evidence. It was later discovered that many of these advocates were actually funded by pharma companies that manufactured opioid pain medications. So this act provides an example of a failure of veracity or truth-telling. I see. Uh, what about Act 2? Well, Act 2 describes how the Joint Commission, along with many of the rest of us, kind of drank the proper pain management Kool-Aid. This act outlines how the Joint Commission introduced pain as the fifth vital sign in its 2000-2001 accreditation standards. But at the same time, Joint Commission was using pharma company-sponsored speakers and educational materials to explain these new pain management standards. Evidence of problems then started to emerge at these accredited hospitals that demonstrated that opioids were actually being overused and leading to oversedation of patients. So Act 2 then follows how the Joint Commission began to walk back this pain management standard. By 2004, any reference to pain as a, as a vital sign was deleted from the Joint Commission standards. The roles that other influential organizations played in the increased opioid prescribing that we saw during this time are also discussed, including the FDA, the DEA, and the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is kind of medicine's equivalent to NABP. What about Act 3, your final act? The final act uh, is entitled uh, A Star Rating is Born. 
And this presented how CMS tied surveys of patient satisfaction with their pain management treatment to CMS payments to health systems. Unfortunately, this attempt to increase a patient's autonomy and fairness in the treatment decisions that were made resulted in an increased prescribing of opioids in response to patient demand, even if that treatment was potentially more harmful than helpful. Tim, you included in your lecture an approach to addressing ethical dilemmas in healthcare practice, which participants then practiced applying to three cases. Could you please give the eight elements in your approach? Resolving or addressing an ethical dilemma is very similar to a clinical decision-making approach. So step one is you want to identify what the problem is. In this case, does an ethical dilemma exist? And two, figure out the facts that are related to the dilemma. Number three is identifying the principles and values that are at play, and those can be personal values, professional values, institutional values, and societal values. Next would be to identify the goal that you're trying to achieve in resolving the dilemma. Number five is generate some possible reasonable solutions. The next step is then to analyze the pros and cons of each alternative. Then the hard part, you need to select an alternative. What are you going to do? And finally, try to anticipate potential objections to the alternative that you're selecting. Well, Heather, you presented one of three cases that were discussed by session participants. Could you please summarize your case for listeners? Absolutely. So my case was ID, the OD, and the ED. Um, And it was about a 55-year-old gentleman who was brought to the ED in respiratory distress after an apparent opioid overdose. Uh, We had great EMS staff that were able to bring in several home prescription bottles for this patient. Um, And you being the ED pharmacist noticed that there are two strengths of long-acting oxycodone and then two bottles of immediate-release oxycodone. We also find out the patient is on a benzodiazepine, uh, also has a history of depression with a suicide attempt previously. The patient wife states that the patient has been disappointed with the relief of his chronic pain, uh, and he's got chronic back pain, and he just had his medications increase two days ago. As you go through this case, the ED physician then believes this was an intentional overdose related to his history of depression and previous suicide attempts and wants the medications disposed of in the emergency department. However, the patient's wife wants to keep the medications and so she can bring them back for the patient to use when he's discharged. The patient, however, with the overdose is intubated and really unable to give you a clear story of what really happened. So given all that, uh, what, from your perspective, are the ethical dilemmas in this case? Like any case, there are several layers. Uh, The first, I think, is the assumption the physician is making that this was an intentional overdose. Um, You know, maybe he's biased with the history of the patient's depression, uh, previous suicide attempt. The patient just had his long-acting opioids increased. He's got multiple prescriptions, all from one provider. Uh, For breakthrough opioids, he's also on a benzodiazepine. So this could really very easily be an unintentional overdose. Um, Another layer is really whether the physician, uh, you as the ED pharmacist, um, or the wife have the right to handle these medications without the permission from the patient. Uh, So where should these medications go? Um, And then there's also layers of 
If he has chronic lower back pain, are opioids appropriate? Is he being appropriately treated? And are we giving this patient the best care? So at the session, we had two other cases of this nature, and I'm sort of curious how, uh, what, what you think about how well the audience responded to those cases and how, uh, what, what can you say about their ability to uh, analyze these cases from an ethical standpoint? Well, I can uh, start off. The impression that I got from the audience, at least from the folks who contributed to the discussion, is that we had uh, one fourth-year pharmacy student there and one resident there, and everybody else was more experienced veteran uh, practitioners. And I was struck by the number of times that a audience member commented on, oh, we've dealt with this kind of thing before. So from my perspective, uh, people in the audience, uh, based on their experience, were very prepared to to deal with these types of, of ethical dilemmas. Yeah, I thought it was also, it should be mentioned, I think the discussion that I heard amongst the tables, they were really asking the right questions. They want to know more information. They were looking at the case from a lot of different angles and really trying to weigh you know, the risks of each decision they were making. Um, and in all conversation was really, they're watching out for the needs of the patient. Even though they were faced with these very difficult ethical dilemmas, which as Tim mentioned, are all too common in our pharmacy practice, um, they were really trying to do the best they could for these patients. Well, beyond the uh, ethical issues you've already mentioned related to opioid use, are there other common dilemmas that arise in pharmacy practice that you'd like to identify? Well, from my perspective, prescribers and pharmacists really should always try to kind of hit that clinical and ethical sweet spot where we're trying to do the best we can to treat our patient's legitimate pain while minimizing that that patient's risk for addiction. Uh, I wish I had a magic wand that I could wave and, and that would make this happen, but at present I think the best approach that pharmacists have at their disposal is to, to use and recommend evidence-based treatments, both pharmacological and non-pharmacological. And then for our patients already suffering from addiction, Pharmacists really do have an ethical obligation, I think, to help try to steer those patients towards appropriate treatment programs. I completely agree. Uh, While pharmacists don't always have a direct role in the recommendations or or actual prescription of these medications, we play a huge role in the surveillance of their use. Uh, So if a pharmacist sees warning signs such as early refills, multiple provider prescribing, Um, unsafe symptoms of an overdose, so they come to pick up their medication and they clearly um, are sedated or just not functioning appropriately to be picking up their prescription and driving home. They really have to have a conversation both with the providers that are prescribing these medications, um, but also as our patients. And it was brought up today in our session that these are difficult conversations to have, Um, but I really think that pharmacists need to step up and have those conversations Um, and really look at it from the perspective that we're trying to take the best care of our patients. We're protecting the medication and the policing role, so we're used to that. We're policing all these things, but we really need to stand up and have those conversations. This is for the safety of our patients. Something else that I'd appreciate uh, having comments from both of you on is, you know, if you think about how this public health crisis has emerged, how it's evolved in our country, 
What lessons should we be drawing from that from a public policy perspective and also from a patient care perspective? We've learned through the early years of this century that our government and our quasi-government agencies really do need to carry out their fiduciary responsibilities to first and foremost protect the health of patients. That's their job. That's the promise that they've made to society. This is not the time to loosen regulations or to hamstring regulatory agencies through political meddling. I think that the Joint Commission provides a really good example of how to do things right. Once they determined that a well-intentioned patient care standard was resulting in outcomes that actually were detrimental to patients, they reversed course. They started down a much more scientifically valid path in terms of chronic pain management, trying to help their health systems really improve patient care for these patients who are suffering from chronic non-cancer pain. I think that the CDC's recent guidelines are reflecting uh, what Joint Commission has uh, started, and so... Now that we're bringing more evidence-based treatments to the fore, I think we're going to see improvement in the situations for these patients who are suffering from opioid addiction problems. I think on a clinical standpoint, um, you know, we have to look at additional alternatives. So we've talked about how opioids can maybe have consequences that we weren't intending. We had good intentions with our patients and then had these unexpected consequences Um, But what else is out there? How should we be treating pain? We know now that some of our previous education was maybe tainted, that we were basing our clinical judgment off things that were inappropriately supported by pharmaceutical companies. So I think we need to move now to an evidence-based model. What works? Let's open our horizons. Think about other alternative medications, things that uh, may have less consequences and really see how we can combine all of this to provide appropriate care. Do you think that there's any risk that all these efforts to address the opioid crisis will seriously compromise the care that patients uh, receive who are suffering from pain? Well, we're always uh, weary of the pendulum swinging too far to one side or the other. But from my perspective, Business as usual regarding the use of opioids to uh, treat chronic non-cancer pain is really what poses the greatest risk to other patients who have chronic pain at this point. Trying um, different evidence-based non-drug treatment modalities, I think, holds probably the greatest promise. There's a risk of overreacting and inappropriately discontinuing opioids from their patients. Um, You know, we've seen patients on opioids who break their stiffed opioid contracts only to be cut off from all opioid prescribing. Um, Discontinuation that doesn't include an appropriate taper can greatly increase the chance that these patients will look for other ways to obtain these medications, legal or not, uh, to address their addiction. Patients may start doctor shopping, um, inappropriately using the emergency department as primary care. Uh, They may even commit crimes to obtain medications. They're trying to prevent withdrawal treat their pain, and satisfy the addiction that they've developed. Um, And providers must recognize this issue. Starting opioids only when needed, appropriately monitoring patients while they're on opioid therapy, and then working with patients to taper off their opioid therapy. For patients with severe pain, where opioids really are appropriate to be part of that multifaceted treatment approach, frequent monitoring and attempts to reduce 
and, and really optimize opioid treatment must be done. And if a provider isn't willing or familiar to really address and treat any potential addiction that these patients could have from their opioids, um, then they maybe should really take a close consideration of should they be prescribing opioids. Tim and Heather, any closing words of advice you have for pharmacists, particularly related to ethical facets of the opioid issue? Well, my recommendation to practitioners out there is to keep those lines of communications open. If uh, your health system produces evidence of how current treatment approaches are detrimental to patient outcomes, or if uh, a health system generates data showing that a novel approach to chronic non-cancer pain management works, share that information and share it with every stakeholder possible, not the least of which are the legitimate patient advocacy groups. Stakeholders that band together with a common message remains one of the strongest approaches for affecting change in uh, our attitudes and policies, both for good as well as for ill. Beyond pharmacy, I think pharmacists should get involved in their communities to advocate for economic justice for all. As mentioned previously, addiction tends to be kind of a disease of despair, and there's no pharmacological approach that's going to adequately address that root cause of this problem. I completely agree. I think the first step pharmacists can do when thinking about ethical implications of the opioid epidemic is to first do a self-check of their own biases. What do they think about opioid abuse, about addiction in general? How do they talk about these patients? Do they refer to them as addicts, abusers? Sometimes something as little as how we refer to patients can make a big impact both on the patients as well as the general public we interact with. Similar of how we're cognizant to say a patient with diabetes versus a diabetic, the same care should be taken with these patients that have substance use disorder. Beyond that, I encourage pharmacists to educate themselves on the issue. Find out how prevalent opioid addiction is in your area um, can really put a new perspective on it um, and the many ways that pharmacists can help with these issues. Imagine the conversations we could have with patients in our pharmacies if we started to see addiction as the medical condition it is. In several states, including Minnesota, pharmacists are even able to prescribe naloxone to patients or third-party prescribers. Uh, Some pharmacies have even suggested a do-you-want-fries-with-that approach um, and recommending that naloxone um, be dispensed with each opioid prescription. While naloxone isn't the cure for opioid addiction um, or the opioid epidemic, pharmacists need to acknowledge that it does exist, and naloxone is a way that we can keep these patients alive and get them the treatment that they so desperately need. We need to work to find ways we can work with the whole healthcare team to really turn this around and help our patients. Well, Tim and Heather, uh, thank you so much for having this conversation on uh, such an important issue in pharmacy practice today. This is William Zelmer for AJHP Voices. I've been speaking with Dr. Timothy Stratton and Dr. Heather Blue of the College of Pharmacy, University of Minnesota, Duluth, discussing the ethical dimensions of the opioid crisis. Thank you for listening. That concludes this interview. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit www.ajhp.org.